From the valley of Hebron to the valley of Dotan, in the footsteps of Yosef and the Midrash, by Rav Yaakov Medan. Yosef's journey from his father's house on the valley of Hebron to Shechem and Dotan to check on his brother's welfare introduces the reader to three important places in the region, as well as to aspects of the shepherd's way of life, caravans of traders and wild beasts. The geography and cameos of life reflected in the parasha are a rich source of interest and inspiration to those who appreciate biblical realia, and they are justifiably enthusiastic about analyzing it. But this journey is at the same time the beginning of an important historical process, the Egyptian exile. In addition, it is filled with heavy moral problems. For these reasons, it is a source of much discussion and philosophizing among the sages of the Midrash, who usually examine events principally from the following two perspectives, the historical and the moral. In this shiur, we shall address the relationship between these two approaches, the realistic and the midrashic, and the question of whether there are connections between them, or whether they are parallel paths with no point of contact. Let us clarify the question. The realist sees the details of the situation, related to the time and place of the action, as elements that are critical for an understanding of it. The Midrash, specifically because of its broad scope and perspective, is generally perceived as ignoring the time and place of the action in order to connect it to the chain of history as a whole, in all its periods. The Midrash, in this view, draws the essence or moral of the story out of its limiting details in order to present it as a general moral statement that is applicable at all times and in all places. If this is the case, then the realistic path and the Midrashic path are indeed parallel roads that cannot meet. We read in the parasha, He sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Rashi comments, Is not Hebron on the mountain? As it is written, They ascended through the Negev and came to Hebron. Rather, it means, From a profound piece of advice from the righteous one who was buried in Hebron, to fulfill what was told to Abraham in the covenant of the parts, your descendants shall be strangers. It is worth noting that Rashi, who did not merit to see Eretz Yisrael, brings proof from the verses as to Hebron's location in the mountains. The Midrash, authored mainly by the sages of Eretz Yisrael, asks briefly, But Hebron is in the mountain, and here it says that he sent him from the valley of Hebron, bringing no proof at all. The sages of the Midrash were obviously familiar with Hebron, and knew that it was located in the mountains. They also knew that the inhabited places in the mountain region were on the mountain tops, not in the valleys and wadis. The mountain tops were easier places to defend, and suffered less from gushing water and mud. The wadis and valleys were better suited for agriculture because of the abundant water supply and silt. However, the biblical reality enthusiasts prefer the view that Yaakov lived in the valley over any other theory. Even if the city of Hebron was situated on the mountain, they contend that Yaakov lived in the valley, in a wadi in Al-Kinna, at the foot of the hill on its northern side. It is also possible, they maintain, that Yaakov lived to the west of the hill, in Wadi Tufach, next to the Tufach Junction on the Peace Road, at the site where the ancient oak tree is identified as Eshel Avraham, next to the Moscovia, a place with a legend from the Byzantine period that identifies it with Elone Mamre. In their view, Yosef was indeed dispatched from Yaakov's home in the Hebron Valley, if there is any reason to delve into the significance of the names of this valley, it is only because of the uniqueness of the expression Valley of Hebron, and because the Torah chooses not to use the more commonly accepted name, Elone Mamre. Perhaps this is how Rashi understood it, 
For if the general location of Hebron is on the mountain, while the valley of Hebron is not a whole region, like the valley of Sarah or the valley of Dotan, but rather just a wadi in a mountainous area, then there would be no reason for the Torah to note the name of this valley. But, as we have said, it seems that the authors of the Midrash recognized the dwelling places in Hebron, both Tel Hebron, the hill of Hebron, and the place known today as Elonim Mamre. The places of habitation were naturally on the mountain, and therefore the Midrash has no problem with the wording of the verses. It addresses only the question of the situation. If indeed Yaakov lived on the mountain, why did he send Yosef from the valley? We find three principal answers to our question above. The first is to be found in the Midrash quoted above by Rashi. He went to fulfill the profound counsel that God had placed between himself and the pleasant friend, Abraham, who was buried in Hebron. In my view, Chazal never meant to detract from the significance of the valley in their interpretation. But the valley, Wadi Al-Kina, Wadi Hebron mentioned above, was not where Yaakov lived. Rather, the valley is the location of Me'arat HaMachpelah. The cave is not right next to the city, but rather at the edge of the field of Ephron the Chiti. The fields, as we have already noted, were in the valley, which was full of silt and saturated with water. Ephron's field, together with all the trees that were in the field and the cave together with them, were purchased by Abraham. In the expression, Valley of Hebron, the sages detected a hint at Marat HaMachbelah. Perhaps they understood that before Yaakov sent Yosef on his dangerous journey northward, he went with his son to pray at the grave of Grandfather Avraham in the Valley of Hebron, and from there he sent him. In this interpretation, Chazal perceive a clear connection between what Avraham saw at the time of the deep sleep that fell upon him in the covenant between the parts, when he was told, Your descendants will be strangers for four hundred years, and what his grandson Yosef saw in his dream. Both visions were about to start being fulfilled with Yosef's departure from Merat HaMachbelah on his way to Shechem. A similar idea is presented by Chazal concerning Kalev ben Yifuneh. In the commentary on the verse, they ascended from the Negev and came, written in the singular, in other words, he came, as far as Hebron. They teach the phrase, he came, refers to Kalev, who went to prostrate himself on the graves of the forefathers because of the counsel of the other spies. Chazal apparently understood that the spies ascended via the valley of Arad, on the ancient road leading up from Negev Hakeni and Negev Kalev, through Carmel, Maon, and Zif, on the way to Hebron. If our assumption is correct, that the spies entered the land through the eastern route rather than the western route, then it is entirely possible that, having trekked through the low places, arrived at Hebron via Wadi Kinna from the south, up to the east of Hebron, since in many Midrashim, Chazal understand the expression up to, or as far as, ad, as meaning up to but not including, the words, he came up as far as Hebron, may be understood to mean up to somewhere close to Hebron, and from this direction, of Wadi Kina, up to Marat HaMachpelah. This is the basis of Chazal's explanation that he came as far as Hebron refers to Kalev, who went to pray at the graves of the forefathers. This Midrash sits well with the description of Yosef setting off for his dangerous journey after going to pray at the graves of the forefathers. At this time, it was the grave of Avraham and Sarah alone. The problem that Kalev faced, a plot by the princes of ten of the tribes, was similar to the problem that Yosef had faced. Yosef's prayer signifies the beginning of the profound counsel, the prophecy of, Your descendants will be strangers. Kalev's prayer at the same site signifies the purpose of that council, 
the prophecy that the fourth generation will return here. The second answer is anchored in the following explanation, offered by the Sforno. He sent him from the valley of Hebron. He escorted him from the city on the mountain as far as the valley. There is a parallel in Midrash Sechel Tov. He sent him. He escorted him with a view to returning. The Sforno, it seems, had difficulty with the same question that troubled Rashi, Radak, and the Midrash, and which we addressed above. Why did Yaakov send Yosef from the valley if Hebron is situated on the mountain? The Sforno solves the problem very simply. Although Yaakov lived on the mountain, he escorted Yosef to the valley and then parted from him. If indeed Yaakov lived in Tel Hebron, then he apparently must have escorted Yosef to the wadi of Hebron. But if he lived in the place known today as Elane Mamre, on the hill next to the glass junction, then he accompanied him northwards to Wadi Azarka, which lies between Hebron and Chalchul, a wadi that joins up with Wadi Nitziv and onwards to Wadi Guvrin. Baal Haturim, on the other hand, arrives at the idea that Yaakov accompanied Yosef on his way from a completely different direction. He accompanied him as far as Hebron. He said to him, Father, return home. Yaakov answered, It is written, Our hands have not spilled this blood, meaning that the elders of the city did not send him off without escorting him. And with these words he parted from him. And it was thus that Yosef remembered him. And this is as it is written, He saw the wagons that Yosef had sent. Balaturim is referring here to the Midrash which teaches, He gave them a sign as to what he was engaged in when they parted the law of the Egla Arufa, heifer whose neck is broken. The Balaturim is not hinting that he had a problem with the valley of Hebron when he speaks of the mitzvah of escorting that Yaakov fulfilled with regard to Yosef, nor does the Sforno hint at the Midrash of Chazal concerning the heifer whose neck is broken. However, the Riva, quoted in the commentary of Balayat Osvot and in the Moshav Skenim, connects the two points. Is Hebron then not on the mountain? This is meant to teach us that he accompanied him as far as the valley. Yosef said, Father, return home. He answered, It is written, Our hands have not spilled this blood. And this is as it is written, He saw the wagons. In any event, it is specifically the topographical paradox that leads the sages of the Midrash and Balayat HaSafot to their conclusion as to the mitzvah of escorting and the related mitzvah of the heifer whose neck is broken. The moment of parting in the valley and the moment of reunification when Yaakov saw the Agalot and remembered the Egla Arufa, whose neck is broken in the wadi, were joined together by Chazal into the same symbol. The Chizkuni offers a third answer, which is a variation on the second. The city is located on the mountain, and Yaakov escorted him as far as the valley. Our sages taught that Yaakov accompanied Yosef, and they were engaged in the matter of the heifer whose neck is broken, and from there he sent him off. There is no hint in the Chizkuni that Yaakov studied the matter of the heifer with Yosef because he was accompanying him, as the Balea Tosafot explain. On the contrary, Yaakov accompanied him because they were engaged in learning the subject. According to this view, the author of the Midrash seems to be connecting the heifer in the wadi to the valley of Hebron, understanding that Yaakov went down with Yosef to the valley in order to teach him and illustrate the law of the heifer whose neck is broken. We have already mentioned that the common practice was to settle the mountaintops and hilltops. These areas are relatively rocky and unsuited to agriculture, but they are good for protection from the enemy. The lower places, streams and wadis, were designated for agriculture because of the water flowing to them, the silt that they contained, and the fact that these were inferior areas from a security point of view. 
The cleft of the valleys was therefore an open area between two inhabited places located on the hills on either side. A murderer seeking to carry out his deeds in secret, like Cain, who killed Hevel when they were in the field, would lie in wait for him outside the inhabited place, like the rapist who ambushes a girl who is engaged to another man in the field. She cries out, but there is no one to save her. There, at a distance from human habitation, the murderer carries out his attack. The place that is hidden and distant from all habitation is the riverbed. It is to this ravine, between the two inhabited places, that the Torah commands us to bring the heifer. Concerning this rocky wadi, full of water and surrounded by fertile fields, the Torah stipulates, a wadi which has not been plowed nor sown. Its soil, which covered the blood of the victim and hid his murder, is cursed. It shall not give of its strength to man any longer. We are told the same of Cain, who, after killing Hevel, covers the blood and tries to escape from his punishment. Thus the parasha of the heifer presents the law, The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a rocky wadi, which has not been plowed nor sown, as a continuation of what was told to Cain. Now you are cursed from the earth that opened its mouth to accept the blood of your brother from your hand. When you plow the ground, it shall no longer give you its strength. It is to such a wadi, to the valley of Hebron, that Yaakov took Yosef as they were learning Torah together, in order to teach him the laws of the heifer, and how the distance from the wadi to the nearest city is measured. Yaakov had no books of halakha. His teaching was handed down orally and experientially, by bringing him down to the wadi and demonstrating the laws. Thus we may assume that when they were in the field, he taught Yosef the laws related to the field, and when they were in the vineyard, he taught him the laws pertinent to a vineyard. In any event, the fact that he sent Yosef off from the valley of Hebron, according to Chizkuni's understanding of the Midrash, is a function of their studying together the laws related to the wadi, the parasha of the heifer whose neck is broken. This interpretation does not provide any explanation as to why Yaakov and Yosef were engaged in this particular halachic issue. But perhaps Yaakov sensed somehow, without being fully conscious of it, the brothers schemed to kill Yosef and cover his blood, to cast him into the pit and thereby hide their crime. Then the valley of Dotan and the wadi in which the pit was located, since a pit is usually found in a wadi, would be a place to which the curse, it shall not be plowed nor sown, would apply forever. The pit, temporarily empty, would become a pit that would never contain any water, and in which snakes and scorpions would creep eternally. In any event, this interpretation of the Midrash again derives from intimate knowledge of the geography and topography of the Valley of Hebron and the Valley of Dotan, and of the habits of farmers, which were so familiar to the sages of the Midrash. Let us summarize the three interpretations presented by Chazal for the expression, the Valley of Hebron. The first interpretation concerns the prayer offered by Yaakov and by Yosef at the grave of Avraham at Merat HaMachpelah. This taught us the importance of service of the heart, prayer. The prayer services were instituted to correspond with the daily sacrifices, and they, like the sacrifices, are the root of divine service. The second interpretation introduces the subject of the broken-necked heifer from one perspective, the mitzvah of escorting that we learn from it. It was because of this law that Yaakov took the trouble to accompany Yosef as far as the valley. The mitzvah of escorting is certainly a branch of the great tree that represents Gemilut Chasadim, acts of kindness, and so Yaakov acted accordingly toward his son Yosef. The third interpretation involves the actual study of the subject of the broken-necked heifer and the valley itself, at the riverbed. There the victim is generally found, there the heifer's neck is broken, and there, at the riverbed, Yosef learned from Yaakov the laws pertaining to this parasha. Yaakov is learning Torah with his son. 
just as they are about to part for such a long period. We learn that the world exists by the merit of Torah, divine service, and acts of kindness. These are the image of Yaakov that Yosef takes on his long journey. We go on to read, His brothers went to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. The reader is at once curious, Why are these people, whose father's house is in Hebron, taking the sheep all the way to Shechem? Our assumption will be that a realistic understanding of the situation in which Yaakov's sons lived was the basis for Chazal's view of Shechem as a place destined for trouble for all generations. Their view, which serves as a background to what we shall propose, comes to answer a question that arises specifically from the most literal level of the text. What are people who live in Hebron doing in the distant pastures of Shechem? The Midrash teaches as follows, Rechavam went to Shechem, for it was to Shechem that all of Israel came in order to coronate him. We learn in the name of Rabbi Yossi, this is a place destined for trouble. In Shechem, Dina was raped. In Shechem, Yosef was sold by his brothers. And in Shechem, the kingdom of the house of David was divided. We may interpret this as meaning that, according to the Midrash, Shechem has some special quality of dispute, controversy, and trouble. A special property is a power bestowed by decree of the Creator. He decided thus, and his decision cannot be questioned. This inexplicable power is the great enemy of any realistic interpretation, making it difficult for us to explain the literal text and to understand the purpose of the brother's journey to Shechem. What we can understand is that Shechem turned from a thriving city to a wasteland because of Shechem ben Hamor and his brutal treatment of Dinah and the legitimacy granted to this deed, at least retroactively, by the people of Shechem and Hamor, their prince. In the wake of this deed, Shimon and Levi went to kill all the males of Shechem. From a hint in Yaakov's words to Yosef and an explicit teaching in the Midrash, we learn that, following the vengeance of Shimon and Levi, a war broke out against many cities in the area of Shechem, with Yaakov's sons and their allies emerging victorious. Perhaps Yaakov's sons sought to establish their rule over this region, settling some of their people there together with the Canaanites who had converted out of fear or out of their free will to become their partners. Since that time, Shechem was a volcanic time bomb with its insufficiently defined population. Many mixed families lived there, such as Avimelech, son of Gidon's handmaid, and the other squabbling inhabitants of Shechem. Shechem is the center where all the mixed multitude that Esar Hadon, king of Ashur, brings to the land following the exile of Shamron. This was a vortex of hatred, dispute, tail-bearing, and all the problems associated with the Second Temple period. Shechem's immoral act with Dinah, and the bloody response of Shimon and Levi bequeathed upon this place forever a population of mixed multitude and a mingling of divine service with idolatry, a population with divided loyalties between Avimelech and his opponents during the period of the judges and between Am Yisrael and their enemies upon the return of the exiles during the Hellenistic and Roman periods. All of these are the reason for Shechem being a place destined for trouble and strife. The curse, the land was defiled and I visit its iniquity upon it, the land shall expel its inhabitants, attached to the sin of sexual immorality, is fulfilled literally in Shechem. In a halachic context, concerning the cities of refuge, the Gemara likewise teaches, in Shechem there were many murderers. Again, sexual immorality goes along with bloodshed. The view of Shechem as a place destined for trouble is therefore not only symbolic or related to some inexplicable inherent quality, it has a historical background and substantiation up until the period of the authors of the Midrash. 
The root of the problem of Shechem and why the brothers go there may be interpreted against the backdrop of the controversy stirred up by the campaign of revenge that Shimon and Levi undertook there. Perhaps a hint to this is to be found in another Midrash from our parasha that is related to Shechem. The brothers went to pasture the flocks of their father in Shechem. There is a vocalization point above the word et, teaching that they really went to pasture themselves. Perhaps it is just the vocalization point above the word et that raised, for the sages, the question of why the flocks of a Hebronite family are pasturing in Shechem. Their conclusion was that the brothers had other business to take care of, business unrelated to their shepherding, their business related to their reign over Shechem and its surroundings, and contact with their loyalists living there. It was a reign of strife in a place destined for trouble. On the other hand, the controversial background explains Yaakov's grave concern for his sons, a concern that made him forget momentarily the danger to Yosef, whom his brothers hated, and whom he sends there. Yisrael said to Yosef, Are your brothers not pasturing in Shechem? Go, I send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. He said to him, Go then, check on your brother's welfare and the welfare of the flocks, and report back to me. The Midrash comments, Why was Yaakov fearful for his son's welfare? He feared that perhaps the avengers of Shechem would attack them, and Yaakov's sons would be killed. We read further in the parasha, A man found Yosef, and behold, he was wandering in a field. The man asked him, saying, What do you seek? The man said, They have moved on from here, for I heard them saying, Let us go to Dotan. The Midrash identifies this man as none other than the angel Gabriel, in sharp contrast to the literal interpretation offered by Ibn Ezra, who says, According to the literal text, he was a regular passerby. This would seem to represent incontrovertible proof that the Midrash abandons the earthly, defined reality of time and space, concerning itself rather with the infinite expanses of ideals. In other words, no realistic, exegetical approach could possibly accept that the man who comes across Yosef wandering in the field is in fact an angel. But we must try to understand what this Midrash is trying to teach. We may even end up arriving at something of a realistic interpretation. The Midrash may be viewed in a number of different ways. First, linguistically, we may present three reasons to depart from the Ibn Ezra's literal description of the man as nothing more than a passerby. Firstly, there is a threefold emphasis on the word ha'ish, the man. Secondly, the man's strange wording of his answer seems to be hiding some secret. They have moved on from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dotan. Thirdly, there is the very fact that the Torah dwells on such an unimportant detail as Yosef's conversation with a man on his way to his brothers. Second, exegetical parallel. Chazal could be comparing Yosef, sent by his father to a dangerous place and losing his way, to Hagar, who flees to the desert and is sent there again by Abraham following the birth of Yitzchak. There we are told, she went and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. There too an angel finds her and encourages her to continue in her path, promising that despite the servitude and the maltreatment that she has endured, her son will grow up and he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Yosef too proceeds, in accordance with the instructions of the man who finds him wandering, towards servitude and maltreatment, and from there to kingship over all his brothers. Perhaps it is for this reason that the man is associated with the angel appearing in chapter 16 and chapter 21. Third, historical parallel. Midrash Tanchuma deduces that the man was in fact Gabriel from a verse in Daniel. 
The parallels between Daniel and Yosef are too numerous to mention, and we shall not dwell on them. The man clothed in linen in the tenth chapter of Daniel is Gabriel. He appears to Daniel in his distress. He strengthens him and tells him of the future redemption to be effected by the kings of Persia. Here, too, Yosef is in a difficult situation when the man appears and hints to him, according to this Midrash, about the future exile in Egypt. None of the above considerations answers the question of what Chazal are trying to teach us in this Midrash that could aid our understanding of the literal text itself and its real situation. Perhaps Chazal were addressing the simple question of what caused Yosef to wander, in other words, to lose his way, and what perplexed him to such a degree that he needed the man's assistance. Apparently, Yosef did not become lost for no reason in a regular field. Quite innocently, he came upon a specific field, the one concerning which we read, Yaakov came whole to the city of Shechem, which was in the land of Canaan, on his return from Padan Aram, and he encamped facing the city. And he bought the piece of land upon which he had erected his tent from the hands of the children of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred ksita. And he placed an altar there and called it Kel Eloke Yisrael. Yosef, and very likely Yaakov too, innocently believed that the brothers had gone to Shechem in order to realize their ownership of the field that Yaakov had purchased for a hundred ksita. They never imagined that the brothers regarded themselves as owners of the entire region of Shechem and its environs by virtue of their violent conquest following the episode of Dinah. Hence, there was no likelihood of Yosef finding his brothers without some assistance, since the valley of Dotan is situated about 25 kilometers north of Shechem, but it is possible that it was still considered part of the Shechem region a region of which Yaakov's sons regarded themselves to be the patrons, and to which they journeyed in order to further their interests. If, indeed, the man met Yosef in the plot of the field that Yaakov had bought, and close to the altar that he had built, then he met him at the first spot where God appeared to Yaakov upon his return to Eretz Israel. There is room to suggest that Yaakov had made this special effort to purchase the field where Abraham had pitched his tent when he came to Eretz Israel up to the place of Shechem, and that God had appeared to him at the same place in which he had appeared to Abraham, telling him, To your descendants I shall give this land. Moreover, the altar that Yaakov built stood on the same place where Abraham had built his first altar. Perhaps the author of the Midrash is teaching that the Shekhinah never moved from the altar built on the site of the first revelation, and Yosef, arriving there, merited a sort of revelation of his own in the form of the man-angel who spoke to him. For Abraham and Yaakov, the revelation took place as they took their first steps in the chosen land, while for Yosef, the revelation signaled his last steps in the land, prior to being exiled, until the end of his life to Egypt. Perhaps the angel was even sent to accompany him in Egyptian exile, just like the angels descending the ladder had been sent to accompany his father Yaakov. In any event, it was in this very field where, according to our theory, Yosef was seeking his brothers when the man appeared to him, that he eventually merited to be buried some 250 years later. We read in Yehoshua, The bones of Yosef, which Bnei Yisrael had brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem, in the portion of the field that Yaakov had purchased from the children of Hamor, father of Shechem, for a hundred ksita, and they became the inheritance of the children of Yosef. If the generally accepted assumption concerning Yosef's burial plot next to Shechem is accurate, then perhaps we also know the place where Yosef wandered, and where the man-angel appeared to him. At first glance, it would seem that the Torah elaborates at greater length than necessary on the fact that Yaakov and Yosef believed that the brothers should be sought in Shechem, while in fact they were in the valley of Dotan. 
Perhaps the Torah emphasizes the move from Shechem to Dotan because a caravan of merchants moving from the Gilad to Egypt could have passed through the Dotan Valley, but could never have passed through Shechem. The Dotan Valley is situated at the center of one of the latitudinal roads connecting the two main longitudinal routes, the King's Highway, passing through Ramat HaGilad and Ramat Moab, and connecting Aram with the Red Sea, and the route of the land of the Philistines, which is much the same as the coastal road of today. The caravan of Ishmaelites and Midianites passed through the land of Canaan crosswise on its way to Egypt, and Yaakov, who, like Yosef, believed that his sons were shepherding in the portion of the land that he had bought near Shechem, never imagined that Yosef had gone all the way to the valley of Dotan. For this reason, Yaakov made no inquiries there. He did not question anyone there about having seen him, nor did he interrogate the Canaanites on the way to Egypt. We shall address the valley of Dotan and what occurred there from two Midrashic perspectives. First, we read in Bereshit Rabbah, The man said, They have journeyed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dotan. They have removed themselves from brotherly love to seek out wily legalities with which to kill you. It seems that the Midrash is not answering a difficulty in the verse. It is rather expressing an idea and using the words of the verse as support. The commentators have two principal ways of explaining the sin of the brothers in particular and the sin of the leaders of Israel and Tanakh in general. One way involves strict adherence to the literal text with a willingness to compromise on the greatness of biblical figures, including Yaakov's sons, viewing them as being driven at times by dark desires. For there is no man in the world who is completely righteous, doing only good and never sinning. The second approach seeks ideological justification for every perceived misdeed of the great biblical figures to the point of identification with the sin and an attempt to present it as innocuously as possible. In our case, this second approach would claim that Yosef was judged by his brothers for making himself a god, thinking that the sun and moon would bow to him. He was also judged a pursuer because of the evil reports about them that he gave to their father, among other things. But any ideological justification of this sin and, in my view, of all the other sins by the great personalities of the Tanakh, does an injustice to the truth, to morality, and to the literal text, unless we assume that its purpose is not to justify the deed, but rather to understand the sinner's justification in his own mind. In any event, I reject any attempt at explaining the brother's sin because of the fact that they accept money for his sale, and because of the equanimity with which they sit down to dine while Yosef cries out from inside the pit. There are two possible ways of explaining the supposed justification that would allow the brothers to carry out their plan. One was mentioned above, the attempt to portray him as deserving of the death penalty because of his actions. The second derives more straightforwardly from the verses in the Midrash. We shall now discuss this view. We read in Bereshit Rabbah, They plotted against him to kill him. They said, Let us set the dogs on him. The starting point of the Midrash even before Reuven and Yehuda moderate the brothers' plan, is that the brothers did not want to kill Yosef with their own hands, but rather through the principle of grama, indirect causality, by means of their dogs. The Midrash Sechel Tov comments, This teaches that they did not plan to kill him with their hands, but rather to cause his death by the shepherd dogs. This hypothesis has the advantage of similarity to what they intended to tell their father, that a wild animal had devoured Yosef. But from the brothers' point of view, it had an additional advantage. It did not involve them actually laying their hands on him. In light of this midrash, Reuven's suggestion may be interpreted as a direct continuation of the brothers' desire for some justification that would serve to keep their conscience clear. 
Reuven said to them, Do not spill blood. Cast him into this pit that is in the desert, and do not harm him. Reuven, whose aim was truly to save Yosef, as stated explicitly in the text, tells the brothers, according to the above Midrash, that setting dogs upon him is tantamount to murder, and that he should rather be left to his fate in the pit, to die of hunger, thirst, or cold. He defines this as death without laying their hands on him, and without spilling blood. Yehuda speaks up next, insisting that this too is manslaughter. Yehuda said to his brothers, What benefit is there if we kill our brother and cover his blood? From the continuation of his speech, Our hand shall not be upon him, and from his words to Yosef many years later, Our brother died. We understand that his chances of being alive many years after being sold were slim. Yehuda, aware of this, wanted only that the deed would not be done by himself and his brothers. The list of all the supposed justifications that appear in the commentaries, the Midrashim and the verses, for the terrible crime that was about to be perpetrated against Yosef, are concentrated in the Midrash into a single sentence. Let us go to Dotan, to seek out wily legalities with which to kill you. Meaning, to seek out legal cover for the act of selling Yosef. The authors of the Midrash perceive the gradual progression in the debate among the brothers in Reuven, and between them and Yehuda, their desire to escape directly responsibility for their act by means of a legal justification. The Midrash attaches this interpretation to the name of the city, Dotan. The word dat, in the sense of law, as opposed to the misleading expression prevalent today identifying dat as religion, did not exist at all in the Hebrew of that period. It is found in Tanakh only in the books from the Babylonian and Persian exiles, Daniel, Ezra, and, particularly, in the book of Esther. Perhaps, then, the wily legalities of the brothers are somehow related to the law, dat, promulgated by the wicked Haman in the capital of Shushan. In other words, in the legal cover that he seeks in order to annihilate Mordechai and his nation. Indeed, there is some similarity between the situations. We read in Esther, The law, dat, was promulgated in Shushan, the capital, and the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Shushan was perplexed. Just as the brothers sit down to eat bread after deciding his fate the first time, and again at the moment that they are deciding it a second time to sell him to the Ishmaelim, so the king and Haman calmly drink against the anguished background of Mordechai, who dons sackcloth and cries and beseeches. The Midrash teaches, God said to the tribes, You sold in the midst of feasting and drinking. Your children will be sold in Shushan in the midst of feasting and drinking. As it is written, the king and Haman sat down to drink. The legal cover for the act allows the sinner to eat and drink with equanimity at the time of his sin, since his conscience is supposedly clear. After all, he has not transgressed the law. It is the brother's journey from Hebron, the source of righteousness and judgment, to Dotan, the source of judgment without righteousness in the sale of Yosef, that Chazal's mention of wily legalities or evil justifications comes to teach us. The Midrash and the commentaries ask, where was Reuven at the time of Yosef's sale to the Ishmaelim? There is no mention of him having separated from his brothers after Yosef was cast into the pit. We may explain his absence in terms of the occupation of shepherding. Perhaps he left the main tent for some purpose related to the flocks, the Midrash adopts a different approach, but one that is not necessarily any less realistic. Reuven returned to the pit. Where had he been? Rabbi Eliezer says, engaged in sackcloth and fasting. From the continuation of the Midrash, it turns out that Reuven was engaged in repentance over his act concerning Bilhah, his father's concubine. 
It seems that the Midrash deduces this from the verse that conclusively nullifies any moral basis for what the brothers have done. They sat down to eat bread. The brothers cast Yosef into the pit and then enjoy a meal. Reuven's noble effort to protect Yosef begins with him not participating in the brothers' meal. Chazal relate this to his repentance over his act with Bilhah, and for this reason he was fasting. We find then that the mitzvah that Reuven performed drew other mitzvot after it. Reuven was engaged in repentance over what he had done with Bilhah, and over his attempt to forcefully take over the birthright by moving his father's bed into the tent of Leah, his mother. He went on to save Yosef, the firstborn of Rachel, even though this decisively cut him off from the birthright. Many years later, Reuven was to receive a reward from God for the two mitzvot that he fulfilled. God said to him, You were the first to save a life. By your life, the first cities to be set aside as cities of refuge will be in your boundaries. As it is written, Betzer in the desert. The relationship between Betzer, the first city of refuge, and what took place in the Valley of Dotan is based on the relationship between the two verses, Betzer in the desert, on the flatlands for Reuven, and cast him into the pit that is in the desert, in the valley of Dotan. But more important is the actual connection between Reuven's act of salvation and the subject of the cities of refuge in general. The Torah testifies concerning Reuven. He suggested throwing Yosef into the pit in order to save him from their hands and to return him to his father. Concerning a city of refuge, we read, The congregation shall save the murderer from the hand of the avenger of the blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of his refuge. For his sackcloth and fasting, and the repentance that he took upon himself, Reuven also received reward. God said to him, Since you were the first to introduce repentance, by your life, one of your descendants will introduce his words with repentance. Who was this? Hoshea, as it is written, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. We shall not delve here into the proofs that Hoshea was a descendant of Reuven. Let us merely note that all of Hoshea's prophecies were addressed to Ephraim, prior to the destruction of Shomron. In these prophecies, Hoshea the Reuvenite appears to prevent the destruction of Shomron, city of Yosef's kingdom, and Ephraim's plunge into the impending Assyrian exile. Hoshea tries to do for Shomron, close to the valley of Dotan, what Reuven tried to do for Yosef in the valley, to save him from disaster. Neither Reuven nor Hoshea was successful in preventing Yosef's exile, but the repentance that both introduced will remain for all generations. I have attempted here to steer clear of etymological and symbolic explanations of the Midrash, which sever the action from the reality of time and space, focusing on the rarefied ideal. I have attempted to show that Chazal's approaches to this story were variegated and diverse. The geography and topography of Eretz Yisrael were familiar to the sages of the Midrash, who lived in Eretz Yisrael, and they used this reality to connect historical phenomena that happened in different places. They did not ignore the political problems that embroiled Yaakov's sons. They related them logically to similar problems that existed during other periods. They knew what the lives of farmers and shepherds were like, and their realistic insights are sprinkled throughout the Midrashim. The sages of the Midrash plumbed the psychological depths of the relationships between adult children and their father, between brothers within a family, between sinners and their inclinations. At the same time, they interwove verses from various sources, viewing different periods and different personalities against the background of their parallels from other times. Scope, imagination, precision, and creativity combine to create the Midrash's vibrant and colorful picture of those distant yet close events, events that took place in those days at this place.